It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, Buckingham Palace says the King remains wholly positive about his cancer diagnosis and is looking forward to getting back to work following the cancellation of all of his public engagements. Today, Prince Harry jetted straight in from California to be by his father's side. Is this a positive step forwards, healing the family rift? I sure as heck don't think so. And Liz Truss launches the political comeback uh, of her life with the latest faction of the Conservative Party. The pop cons set out their agenda this morning with Nigel Farage watching on. The Tories now have more faces than a Russian doll. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got a huge show for you tonight, and as you'd expect, we've got the best guests, because this is a show like no other. We've got all the latest news on Harry and the Windsors. Is it really the return of the prodigal son? We found someone who thinks XL bullies are harmless. Is she insane? And we're asking why people are pulling out their own teeth with pliers. All the big questions, with a few laughs thrown in as well. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get the ball rolling. Now, the King's cancer diagnosis may have come as a surprise, but it's no secret that our head of state is something of a workaholic. In fact, royal sources tell Talk TV that in his first year as monarch, Camilla and royal aides feared he would make himself ill. The King carried out more than 550 royal engagements last year. He was crowned King in his coronation ceremony in May, but it wasn't until November that he gave his first speech as monarch at the state opening of Parliament. Then in December, he headed to Dubai to deliver an opening address at COP28, where sources close to the palace say he looked grey and tired, even in the desert heat. The nation watched his first Christmas broadcast as King on the 25th, and later that day he attended a church service in Sandringham. And His Majesty returned there on New Year's Eve for another church service. His last public royal engagement was on the 8th of January, when he opened a library for a primary school in Norfolk. But on the day before he was admitted to hospital, he also welcomed academics from Cambridge University to visit him in Sandringham House. Then, on the 26th of January, he began prostate treatment at the London Clinic before being discharged just a few days later. And he was all smiles this Sunday when he attended a church service in Sandringham. I'm joined now by Royal Commentator Emily Andrews. Emily, welcome to uh, the newly revamped Independent Republican Micro. Um, it's been quite a day. Uh, we'll look at uh, some of the things that happened today in a moment. But um, an extraordinary period, again, for, for the King 
having only really been uh, been king for, for for less than a year. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, he's wasted his whole life to do the job. You yeah. know, he's the longest serving Prince of Wales. He became heir to the throne when he was just four years old. Right. And yet within 14, 15, 16 months, here he is having to step back from the from the big job. I mean, Buckingham Palace say that obviously he's still doing his state business, very keen to reassure us. Yes. Still doing his red boxes, still right. can see the Prime Minister, still hopefully can do Privy Council mm. by Zoom. COVID showed us that, you know, monarchs can yeah. use video calls. Yeah. Um, but not being able to do those public-facing engagements because I think his doctors want to limit any kind of... Mm. Um, you know, exposure to any, you know, flu or any kind of viruses is very sensibly. And, and those public engagements are the things that he really enjoys doing. Right. I thought that timeline that, that um, you put together by your own fair hand, Mike, yes, um, was excellent, actually, because it really kind of does bring home, I think, mm. the, the the magnitude of work that Well, exactly. Done. And I think that's what we all realised yesterday, as we were talking last night on the show, about what, what you know, if people say, oh, well, what do they do? They don't do much. Well, they do an awful lot, yeah. actually. And there's an awful lot because they can now not do it that will sort of go... Go missing, but I mean, one of the things we said last night was, will the palace give us any more information about exactly what kind of cancer he's got? And there were some who said that they probably will once they know what it is. Are you? Do you share that view? I think that they will want not right now. So the short answer is no. We won't get any more information right now. We know that it's not prostate cancer, yeah. but we know that the cancer was picked up when he was having that operation at the London Clinic for a benign enlarged prostate. Mm. Now, it could be any number of things, and the palace of us is not to speculate because it's not right. very helpful, which yeah. I understand. This is, which is fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously we all want to know, but I also understand, you know, it's that very difficult balancing act, isn't it? On the one hand, he is the head of state, his his health is a matter of public yeah. record, and we all want to know. It's not just the head of state here, head of state of 14 other countries around the world, but also he is allowed privacy. Mm. And so I think it's fair enough that the palace haven't told us so that, you know, if they were, we were having any medical experts, right. prognoses, you know, speculating about how long the treatment would be, what treatment he'd have. So I think he's entitled, very much entitled to have that privacy. I think once he perhaps has finished the treatment or perhaps then it's gone well, mm. I think that's the key. It's gone well and he's deemed to be, you know, not in remission specifically, right. but um, perhaps But responding then. to the treatment yes. or something and like that. And then perhaps right? he might. I mean, look, he's, he's patron of a number of mm. um, cancer charities. Yeah. Perhaps he said already that he wanted to give the um, transparency of his um, benign prostate operation to encourage more men mm. to go and get their prostate checked. And yeah. we've seen the result of that. The NHS website, sort of huge yeah, surging absolutely. numbers, which is really, really encouraging. Have you had your prostate checked, Mike? Yes. Well, I mean, I'm not obviously at will uh, to say that, but yes, I have, actually. Good, um, good. So, you know, as, as, as I should do, and as yeah, all absolutely. men should do as well. Because, obviously, Charles, having done this, it meant that this other thing mm. was picked up. It was asymptomatic. Yes. And I think that's also the key, that, you know, often if you do go and get ch things checked out, the initial thing might be OK, but there might be, there might be other, other things, things as well. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I think that Charles has said that he wants to be transparent, he wants to encourage other people, People. So I suspect that in time, perhaps he or the palace will, he or might, maybe yeah, he, he might, might he become might. patron of another cancer yeah. charity or etc. Mm. I thought it was very interesting that on Sunday it was World Cancer Day, and I don't ever remember the royal family before marking yes. World Cancer Day, but the royal family social media channels did. Right. So of course interesting. now we know yeah, why. So now we know why. Let's just have a quick look at what happened over the last 24 hours. King Charles has been seen in public for the first time since his cancer diagnosis was revealed, waving at well-wishers as his car left Clarence House before heading off to rest and recuperate in Sandringham by helicopter. 
The king was joined by his youngest son, Prince Harry, this afternoon, who flew in from Los Angeles to Heathrow and was pictured arriving at Clarence House for a brief reunion with his father, believed to be their first since the king's coronation last May. So, um, a big question now, Emily, is where is Harry? Because we don't think he's gone to Sandringham. He's obviously not in the helicopter, even though he is an aviation legend. I thought he might have been flying it. It could have been that opportunity. Um, <laughs> he could have done that. He could have done that and just gone, look at me, I'm an aviation legend. Keeping up my flying Taking hours. Taking down in the helicopter. But uh, So, where do, you th where do you think he is? Um, well, the, the short answer is I don't know. Mm. Uh, he flew into Heathrow around lunchtime. He was given Metropolitan Police protection right. straight away. I imagine he'll have used the Windsor Suite, which, of course, is reserved for the royals and... VIPs. Um, he was brought to London with a police convoy. He was given police protection. Um, he was driven straight to Clarence House where mm. he saw his father for 45 minutes. Yeah. Not that long, Not really. some might say. And then... This is his first time he's seen him this first year, First right? time he's seen him really since the death of uh, the Queen's right. the Queen's funeral, because actually, if we look at the if we look at the timeline of Harry's visits to the UK, when he came for the coronation, he didn't even speak to his no, father. He left he, straight, straight exactly after, didn't straight he? after the the service at the Abbey. He was back. I think he went very briefly back to Buckingham Palace, even to perhaps get changed, but didn't see members of his family. Straight back to the airport, so yeah. he could be back um, for Archie's birthday because okay. the day of the. Um, coronation was on Archie's birthday and so then he did come back to London uh, in the autumn last year for um, a charity engagement on the way to Invictus in the Netherlands mm. didn't see his father then because right. his father was up at Scotland was invited to see his father didn't see his father so really this is the first time he's spoken to his father face to face mm. um, for 15-16 months Charles doesn't have a mobile phone, right. so it's not it's not exactly if Harry can not WhatsApp and say, yeah. "Right, Dad, how are you doing?" So it really and it's difficult to get hold of mm. um, Charles. So it was, I think, a very welcome development. Where is Harry now? I suspect he'll be back at the airport and yeah. back going. Well, home we'll find to... out some more about that coming yeah. up. Because we'll talk some more about that. We've got much more to do. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the prodigal prince, returning home following that shock announcement of the king's cancer diagnosis. But where does it leave the brothers? Prince William and Prince Harry. Will Harry feel William's cold shoulder or is there a brotherly reunion in the horizon or even on the horizon? Life is short after all. See you after this. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Face to face for the first time in 16 months, Prince Harry today cast his ongoing rift aside to be with family following the King's cancer shock. So where does this leave the feuding brothers? While Harry is said to be open to a meeting, William has no plans to meet with him this week. Instead, he's focusing on his own public engagements. And it could get a bit awkward if Harry ends up staying at Frogmore Cottage in Windsor, the place he was kicked out of last year. It would mean the brothers at war could become neighbours at war, with less than a mile of no-man's land separating William's Adelaide Cottage and Frogmore Cottage. Not sure there's much chance of that, though. Joining me now live from Los Angeles is the host of the Royal Podcast, To Die For Daily, Kinsey Schofield. Kinsey, welcome back. Um, 24 hours after we spoke to you, um, Harry is, is here. We think he might not be here for long. We're, we're, we're fairly sure. Emily Andrews just said to me she wouldn't be surprised if he's already back at the airport uh, jumping on a plane to L.A. And we do know that they are preparing to head to Canada to promote Invictus, both Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Uh -huh. So I feel like that is going to be a priority for him. And that is going to dictate a little bit of how long he stays in, in the UK. 
Uh, we know that they have that trip planned and that is a big trek for them because they've got to find, the, I'm sure that it's childcare, it's getting everything in order before you know crossing the border over to Canada. Um, so yeah, I think that I'm glad that he spent some time with the King today. It's interesting that you have reports that Prince Harry was open to a meeting with Prince William mm. because People Magazine here in the States, which is very Sussex friendly, the Sussexes give them a lot of exclusives. They give them, there are a lot of, you know, leaks that go into People Magazine from Sussex sources that, that tend to be accurate. Uh, this, that They've reported that Harry has no plans to visit with his brother. Uh, and to me, I interpreted that as almost, I don't, I don't want to meet with my brother. So that's, I, I'm curious to know where you're saying that Harry is open to a meeting with Prince William because the America is not reporting the same yeah. thing. Well, it may be one of those PR situations, mightn't it, where he's open to it, but he doesn't want to actually offer it because, you know, he doesn't want to be the guy who blinks first. You know, brothers can be weird like that. Yes, I also think that maybe he knows that it's realistically not an option. Prince William, we're, we're getting ready to see him again tomorrow. I'm looking forward to that. And he's got a lot of weight on his shoulders right now. He's taking on additional duties on top of daddy duty. Mm. Uh, he's helping the Princess of Wales, Catherine, in recuperation. Uh, we know he's spending every spare second at home with her and the kids. Um, but he's got to be the face. He's got to put himself back out there while the king is in this situation, while his wife, the Princess of Wales, is, is unavailable until Easter. He's going to have to take on additional work and, and be the face. So the likelihood of that reunion, it's just it's not going to happen with so much on, on Prince William's plate right now. But also, nothing's really changed, has it, since the book came out pretty much a year ago uh, and all of the things that were in the book that supposedly incensed William anyway, in addition to what he was already incensed about. And what really upset Prince William at the time were what he deemed swipes at his wife, the mm. Princess of Wales. And she is... Uh, you know, she's... Uh, a, a, Harry knows she's unable to defend herself. But today... She's in a very vulnerable situation. Um, we know that she had her abdominal surgery a few weeks ago. She stayed in hospital for 13 days. And we don't expect to see her until Easter because she's going through, you know, she's in recovery at home, safe and sound with her babies. I'm sure she's thrilled to be able to spend this extra time with them. Um, but, you know, I think that Prince William is probably especially protective of her right now, feeling like she's in this vulnerable state of recovery. Mm. Indeed. Just to pick up yeah. on Kinsey's question, actually, it's a good question, Kinsey. Um, I understand that actually it was Kensington Palace, William's spokespeople, who were briefing that there were no plans yeah. to see Prince Harry. And I thought it was very significant that they were being so definitive mm. because if you were wanting to be kind of conciliatory, perhaps, as Prince William's spokespeople, you might say, well, you know, we'll see, or no comment. If there's time or there's something time, like no that. comment. No plans to see his younger brother. Right. I mean, very definitive. And for me, that can only have come from Prince William. Yeah. So Kinsey's right, very protective of his wife and, and children, but he's making it very clear he's not going to see his younger brother. Yeah. That would seem to be the, the, the status quo. And given that he doesn't appear to have gone out of London with his father either, 
you would imagine that it would be a bit of an awkward thing then for him to stay uh, in, the, in, in London or, or indeed in Britain. Well, we know he stayed in the hotel, the, uh, a hotel, the last time he was there. Yeah. Um, I, when he was there, I believe he wanted to stay at Windsor. He was there for, for some sort of litigation and he was his request was denied. Mm. Um, so he did stay in a hotel. So he's not he's comfortable with that. He's OK with that. Obviously, he'd prefer to stay at one of the estates and feel protected. But he, I think that he was mentally prepared to stay in a hotel if he had to. I imagine if there was a formal invite for him to come out and see the king and spend any amount of time with him, they are going to handle that on the palace's end. But they have requested that he give them notice when he plans to come out and they will determine whether or not they're in a position to give him the, the you know room at an estate if he needs it yes kinsey thank you very much indeed kinsey schofield there with the word from the united states of america los angeles in particular okay so how will king charles's diagnosis and the return of harry go down in the royal household well joining us now is consultant psychiatrist dr raj Pasod, and still with me of course is emily andrews uh, as you know dr raj welcome to the independent republic of mike graham thank you um Fascinating interplay going on between the members of the royal family because we say, yes, of course, they're, they're you know, famous, they're a royal family, but they're still a family. Um, how has this kind of dynamic been, do you think, for, for all of them since the announcement of the cancer? Well, as a psychiatrist, people may be surprised to know I take a lot of referrals from cancer doctors mm. sending me their patients right. because the emotional impact of a cancer diagnosis is massive. And the statistics suggest up to 40% of newly diagnosed cancer patients suffer from clinical depression mm. as a direct result. Yeah. So it's massive, right? And also there's a massive impact on the family dynamic. So every conflict that may have been there, and obviously there was a pretty obvious yes. set of conflicts, begins to appear rather trivial mm. in the face of such a massive thing as a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So one of the things that happens is that there's a sense in which any kind of rift or argument you had before, you're meant to shelve it mm. for the benefit of the patient at the center of this, yes. who's got a cancer diagnosis. So it kind of changes all the kind of rifts or the arguments that happened before. And one of the problems, I think, for people like Harry is in a, there's a sense in which, is it possible that he and Meghan invested in the idea of media attention and income from having a fight with mm. the king or the royal family? Yeah. To what extent can they really continue doing that? To what right. extent does it start to look whiny? I've even seen extreme cases where cancer patients feel stress has caused their cancer, yeah. right? Well, certainly some people, people, will some be people thinking, have written that today, haven't they? Yes. Some people will be thinking that the stress that Harry caused the king, mm. you know, may have had some role in this. Yeah. I'm not saying that doctors would necessarily agree with that, but certainly people who've been under a lot of stress and then develop a cancer diagnosis yeah. often explain it sure. in this way. You know, you gave me the cancer mm. yeah. with the stress you put me under. Mm. Absolutely right. And interestingly, that kind of takes care of perhaps the 45-minute meeting that he had with his father, but of course, the brothers don't have that same dynamic, do they? Because, you know, they may both support their father in his time of need, but they don't need to talk to each other. Yes, I also think geography is going to play a role here because William's obviously in this country mm. alongside his father and Harry is coming and going. Yeah. And I think geography begins to play a big role because Harry will begin to be increasingly sidelined. And he'll have a problem because yeah. he can't be in this country all this time without his wife 
back in the US right. and, and some of the projects back in the US beginning to call him back. So I think geography begins to play a big role in this situation yeah. where just the natural fact that William is so close geographically to his father means that he begins to be associated mm. with the, the kind of rock on which the king depends and Harry begins to be pushed further and further outside yes. of the kind of inner circle mm. of the royal family. Because Emily, I remember when the, the, they went for a walk, do you remember in, uh, in Windsor, the four of them, and at the time there was already a feud going on and everyone said, oh, maybe this is the start of a rapprochement. But it, I never thought it was. I don't think there'll ever be one, do you? Not at the moment. That's the short answer. And I certainly think for William and Kate, or Catherine, as we must now call the Princess of Wales, I think it will take a long time to mend those bridges with Harry and Meghan. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Spare, about the autobiography, about what Harry had to say, Harry and Meghan had to say in that Netflix documentary mm. about Kate and about William. She was cold. They had a, he and Harry had the fight, the dog bowl. They didn't welcome Meghan enough. This, um, you know, meet the, when the four of them went down the long walk at Windsor to accept flowers after the death of the Queen, um, that Kate afterwards said it was one of the hardest things she'd ever mm. done. I think she was very nervous. I think you could see visibly see Megan shaking. Yeah. She also didn't know how the British public would react to her, let alone how her brother-in-law and sister-in-law would react to her. And so, yes, I think perhaps, I don't know, Dr. Rogers, time a healer, but I think it's going to take a long time to mend that particular relationship. Well, I think the problem is in the face of something as massive as a cancer diagnosis, yeah. all the complaints you saw in the book Spare begin to seem a bit trivial, yeah. don't they, in comparison? To be honest, they were trivial all, uh, at any time, really. I mean, the idea that the, he was moaning uh, this guy who was supposed to be a hero of the Afghan war, you know, that he got pushed into a dog bowl and, you know, hurt himself. And he's just kind of going, really, is that is that the worst you can report? So I'm, I'm with you, Raj. I, th I think totally... Totally ridiculous, an awful lot of the, the, the whining and the money. And I think a lot of people saw through it, you know. But I suppose watching, as, as we just have, watching those the, the four of them walking around in Windsor, I mean, is there any forgiveness for Meghan? Was she completely unsuited to the role? Could she have been completely overwhelmed by it? Or do you think, like most people, that she just wanted something she couldn't have? Well, a lot of people would say history is repeating itself when they think about Princess Diana. Someone signs up to join the royal family, doesn't really seem to understand what's mm. involved, then begins to complain about the inevitable stuff that most of us thought, right. you should have seen this coming in yes. terms of the requirements of the job. Mm. It's not just simply that you're marrying a prince and it's like in the movies. Right. There's, a, there's a lot of stuff that's coming. Why could you not see that? Mm. Why did you not understand what you're signing up for? Of course, they'll defend themselves and say, well, it was love. Mm. You know, emotions were in play. Well, there's a lot There's a lot involved in being a member of the royal family. There's yeah. a lot of duties, obligations. Yes. It's a public situation. Don't sign up for it unless you yeah. really understand what's going to be undertaken. And also a lot of people who, who kind of ask for, for kind of, you know, a bit of slack for, for Harry and Meghan always say, oh, they're just a young couple. Well, they're not really, are they? They're not actually a young couple. I mean, they're a quite well-established couple and they're not young. Well, no, I mean, Meghan is, is over um, 40. Four, I mean, you know, haven't... Forbid I would call that old. I mean, I would call that young-ish. But, but I'd not, like to think that was young. Not, I'd like to think that was young. But they're not a young couple, is what I mean. No, I mean, look... And, but they know, could be regarded as an immature couple. They're certainly immature, <laughs> no question. Yeah, and I, I think... I think... I think, well, I certainly, Dr. Rush, would not want to marry into the royal family. I think it is obviously a centuries-old... No matter how swept off your feet. No matter right. how swept <laughs> off I was my feet, by prince or princess. OK. But I think, no, because I think it's a centuries-old institution 
which, although it has moved with mm. the times, I think is still steeped in the mores and the culture of ancient medieval courts, frankly, mm. where, you know, <clears throat> hierarchy is still dictated deference. by birth yes. order, mm. deference, and they are medieval courts, I've always thought, you know, mm. even though now we talk, to use that awful palace word that Charles and his son, William, are in lockstep together, Palace love that. Mm. I won't tell you later. Can you analyse that for me, please? Lockstep. Yes. What does that mean? Well, let me let me ask because we're nearly out of time. Just let me ask you, uh, Raj, before you go, the Camilla role in all of this, because obviously that's another reason why Harry and his father can't really be that friendly because of what he said about her. But presumably, her support for him is the key thing at the moment. Yes, all the evidence is that your your emotional response to the cancer could even influence the prognosis quite yeah. significantly. Right. And the emotional support of people close to you, like your wife, is very important. There's a really interesting feminine dynamic here, which is that women want the guy who's under stress mm. to vent and talk about it, whereas the guy sometimes doesn't want to. Mm. And that, women can often feel if you're not downloading with me, they, they feel a bit alienated. They feel as if that, that's affected the closeness. Yeah. So there's a lot to be negotiated between the two of them. But so far, all the evidence is from the press reporting is that she's enormously important in his emotional mm. response to this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, great to see both of you. Thank you very much, Dean. Emily Andrews, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. This is going to be running for a while, Dr Raj Basode, as well. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Former Prime Minister Liz Truss is back in the political spotlight with the launch of a new right-wing Tory faction, PopCon. So get your popcorn at the ready, as after the break we'll cover an epic political comeback, or just is it plain delusion, as some of you are calling it. Don't go anywhere! Welcome back. Liz Truss was out in force today, launching the new lobbying group PopCon. It is aiming straight at the heart of large and small C conservatives who think the Tory party has abandoned any crumb of real conservative policy. Despite her polling as the least popular political figure in the UK, her event attracted big names such as former UKIP leader Nigel Farage. Here's what he had to say about the fate of the Tory party to our own Talk TV chief political correspondent, Peter Cardwell. They're going to lose the next election. Maybe they reform and change afterwards, or maybe rather like Canada 30 years ago, maybe we're at one of those moments where they simply need to be replaced. This is way too late. You know, the sense of betrayal that millions of voters feel, the optimism of that 2019 manifesto, the feeling that not only did they not deliver it, but they never actually believed in it when they put it to the public. No, it can't be turned around. Uh, that's fairly definitive from Nigel Farage. I don't think he was actually there supporting them, he was just there observing them. But joining me live now uh, is co-founder of Delta Poll, Joe Twyman. Joe, very good evening to you. Welcome to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. I mean, Nigel Farage is right, isn't he? I mean, people have looked at this uh, announcement and looked at the sort of suggestions that they're making as, as policy, um, that it's all lifted straight from the Reform Party's uh, manifesto. Well, good evening, Mike. It certainly looks like a uh, looks like, I guess, a a, a nice tribute act of, uh, <laughs> of uh, for uh, for reform and perhaps other uh, other populist parties. But ultimately, this is another breakaway faction within the governing party. Whether it's the New Conservatives, the the National Conservatisms, uh, the Conservatives of Britain, all these different groups have uh, have. Uh, sprung up over the last few months, all of them are essentially trying for the same thing. And that's not about the coming election, it's about positioning themselves for the future. Once the election has taken place and, and they are all assuming that the Conservatives will lose, they want their message across 
uh, and they want to uh, be an important part of that future for the Conservative Party. The difficulty, of course, for all of them is that many of them have competing, uh, competing priorities and they may find it very difficult to all have a clear and loud voice in the future mm. of that party. Yeah. I think there's I, a lot more, uh, lot more infighting still to come. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the two interesting stories for me, which I'm going to talk to my panel about who are here with me as well, um, is one, how high reform are now sort of polling, 14%, we believe, in quite a few polls that are coming out, certainly bigger than and the Lib Dems are not very far behind the Tories at all. But also this Labour vote, which is sort of collapsing in Muslim communities because of Keir Starmer's positioning on the ceasefire in Gaza. Well, I think that to take the, to take the latter point, uh, there's not a lot of data and, uh, and certainly a, a great absence of really reliable data of, uh, of the Muslim community's voting intentions uh, it, at any stage, but particularly, particularly in, recent, uh, in recent weeks in light of Gaza. I think the Rochdale by-election will offer an indication of where things might go. But I think come the election, the concerns of the Muslim community are very similar to the concerns of the rest of this country. Uh, their top priority is almost certainly likely to be uh, the cost of living, the NHS and the economy generally. And while, uh, while Gaza and the situation there will play a more important role, I think it's unlikely to be a general election, the deciding factor. And it's not as if any of the other parties on offer have a, uh, have a position that's more closely aligned with some of the... Uh, uh, some of some people within the Muslim community. So I think I think that is perhaps a uh, perhaps a misnomer, something that uh, they don't need to worry about so much. If, if you're Labour, I think reform will uh, will have an interesting uh, an interesting week next week with the two by elections that are coming up, and the question there is, can they translate what has been a growing level of support in opinion polls over the last few months? Can they translate that to support in? by-elections, because up until now they really haven't made much of a substantial breakthrough. And though it could be argued that in some cases uh, they may take a few votes off the, uh, off the Conservatives, I think that's unlikely to make the difference between a large Labour landslide, for instance, and a moderate Labour victory. Uh, it's going to be far more complicated than that. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be. Joe, thanks very much indeed. Joe Twyman there. Joining me now in the studio with their reactions to all of this, Deputy Political Editor of the Sun, Ryan Sobey, Broadcast and Journalist Amber Wolfe, and uh, former Labour advisor Matthew Lazar. Welcome, all of you. Um, so, today was this big, kind of slightly bizarre launch of this big movement, which not so big as, as perhaps people thought it was going to be. I think there was only about 12 actual Tory MPs there. Um, and not everybody who was meant to be there was there. I got an invitation to this thing a couple of weeks ago, and one of the four faces that was supposed to be speaking was Simon Clark. And about one day later, he called for the assassination of Rishi Sunak, effectively, <laughs> and he was off the... Uh, off the agenda, so he wasn't there at all. He was now apparently positioning himself somewhere else. So it already got off to a pretty bad start, didn't it? Yeah. So you had um, Simon Clark, who called for Rishi Sunak to go, and as soon as you call for Rishi Sunak to go, you're out the picture. Yeah. They don't want this to be about the current leadership. It's all about positioning mm. after the next election. And also you had Ranul Jaiwardenan, who now says that he wants to sort of look at the, sense, the common ground, wants right. to be part of that common ground that doesn't want to lurch away to mm. the, the popular Conservatives. So on the eve of this big launch today, he decided that he was off. And don't forget as well, this was going to slightly overshadowed a little bit by Kwasi Kwarteng this morning. Yeah. He's not going to be an MP after, he's not going to stand for an election. So, you, you and know, I don't know whether he was there or not, Emma. I don't know if you know whether he was there, but was he? 
No, I don't think so. Well, no, Quaz, no, no. He, he wasn't there. He, he kept himself out of the picture. No. I think he just wanted to send a reminder that, you know, you remember when you sacked me at 36,000 feet when I was going yeah. over the Atlantic? <laughs> yeah, I don't think they... That was quite a them. landing. Yeah, I think they're off the, yeah. each other's Christmas card list. No, exactly. Sure. But what is the point of, of the Conservative Party doing this? I mean, Liz Truss has always kind of aligned herself more with the, the sort of right-wing American market, hasn't she? She likes to go into the States and make, you know, lots of uh, statements and, and, and speeches about lowering tax and, mm. and changing the economic growth model and all of that. But, you know, nobody really likes her here. But isn't this just political suicide? We have so many well, I think she's already done that, hasn't but, she? Well, she has, yeah. And, and the irony of her calling it, as you say, the least popular yeah. leader ever, um, calling herself the, the popcorns is just hilarious. I mean, the, the leaflets are hilarious. Yeah. So badly written. My, right. my three-year-old could write, honestly, seriously. And, I mean, I haven't seen much really of her Really badly. But I saw edited. one line from it where she said, I don't get invited to, to dinner parties in London. It's not really a selling point if you're trying to make yourself popular, is it? But is she trying to demonstrate... Are they trying to demonstrate that they are so divided and so disunited mm. that they literally can't even unite? Months before a general election, yeah. they can't even come together. It makes no sense to me. How many families now? Seven, eight, yeah. nine, ten families? Right. And they're all dysfunctional. <laughs> Certainly families. We're going to have the kind conservatives. You know, literally, we're going to have the caring conservatives. Well, the caring conservatives are one that's got, that got them into all this trouble because <laughs> they, they, I mean, their main sort of planks of, 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 of promotion seem to be, you know, let's get taxes down, let's stop net zero, let's forget about, you know, um, all of this ridiculous growth that, uh, that Rishi Sunak isn't getting and, you know, stimulate the economy better, give people more of their own money, all of which this Conservative government is not doing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that, how much of the manifesto or the policy ideas that these popular Conservatives come up with mm. will actually be adopted. That, you know, they were taught, they were, you know, anti-net uh, right. zero, right. anti the European Convention of Human Rights, trying to come up with their own agenda. Right. But again, it's where... where well, several people, including on. Alex Phillips, who's in reform, uh, was on this station today saying, you know, they've literally just cribbed everything from the reform oh, manifesto. Um, and they didn't even really don't go particularly hard on immigration. No. Matthew. Well, that's I mean, because there's according a According to Nigel Farage, speaking. who I think was, was, was speaking there just before, he also said, I think out of... Uh, an hour and a half of speaking or something, they only spent a couple of minutes on immigration. Yeah, because I think, I mean, Liz Truss herself has actually historically got quite a libertarian streak. Mark Littlewood, the uh, former boss of the IEA, yeah. uh, as well as it, basically libertarian. So actually, on immigration, secretly, uh, quite a few of them are, uh, uh, are people who think that it's essential to, to, to a growth model. But there's a great line from today, which I think is the line of the day, which says, asking Liz Truss how to make conservatism popular, it's from The Spectator, uh, is about as sensible as asking Paula Venels uh, for lessons yes. in management technique. Yes. Um, I think that's true. I mean, I've heard know. that, but I've also heard other Tory MPs who are not part of this group saying, you know, if um, Liz Truss was popular, she'd still be Prime Minister. Exactly. Well, that's pretty rich coming from somebody supporting Rishi Sunak, who's pretty unpopular as well, and who, as far as we know from, from surveys of, of, of Conservative members in the shires, you know, would vote for pretty much anybody rather than Rishi Sunak to I, be in charge. I, th I think Rishi Sunak's poll rating is even, even lower than, than Liz Truss. Yeah. I mean, it's, things have got really, really bad and mm. he's so far behind in the polls and that hasn't seen any sign, of, any sign of shifting. But one thing I'd be in interested to see at this election is how many seats reform actually cost the mm. Conservatives. If you go back to 1997, it's the referendum party go back that far, actually yeah. directly cost the Tories about 23 mm. seats. So it's a pretty bad night anyway. I think they'll do well at the by-elections next week. And I think it's going to be historically low turnout of the election because... Yeah. OK, Labour people... people, people are very fed up. Labour people, you might not love Starmer, but they, they'll vote Labour. Who are the Tories? Who are Conservatives, yeah. like us, going to vote for? Yes. Literally, we have three horrible options. Vote reform, let Labour in. Yeah. You vote for Sunak and you get more of the same rubbish. 
or you don't vote at all, right. which I really dislike the idea of. Where do you vote? There are so many homeless mm. conservatives. Mm. I mean, in terms of the warring families, I think, you know, from, from my side of the fence, uh, once you're talking about the party and the different uh, families right. or factions, as we call them, yeah. uh, within the party, you know you're in trouble because you're not listening to the voters, because yeah. you should debate about what the people want and not what the factions want. And I was want. listening to, to um, a couple of conversations this morning who were talking about how in a lot of polls at the moment, a lot of focus groups, people are not particularly... Uh, anxious about any particular issue, but they're fed up. But they're just fed up. Yeah. They just have had enough Absolutely. of the Tories. They're just like they can't seem to agree on anything. You know, they say they're going to do one thing, they do another. Nobody knows where they are on net zero, really. And Nobody this knows just where they are that. on taxation. But you know, Jeremy Hunt says a different thing about every week. No one feels passionate about anything that Starmer's no. particularly said, though. I don't think anyone feels, oh yes, this Labour policy is really setting me mm. on fire. Right. A, he hasn't really announced many policies, no. and B. Anything Don't mention does, 28 billion. Anything <laughs> yeah. he does announce, he then U turns on. He's flip flops so but many I times on the 28 still, billion. If you're Labour, you'll sure vote Labour. Where we are. But does it show a confidence issue with Keir Starmer when it comes to the 28 billion? Mm. He's got a, a story to tell on that, whether it's gr green jobs, yeah. you know, improve, improve the environment, you know, help certain it's energy you know, corporation. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, rebuild certain <laughs> it's communities. It's so exciting. I, I want to scream and go and vote. Yeah. This could be a real story of levelling up. But right. in fact, he's shying away from that. Why is he doing that when he's so far ahead? This is his moment to grab everything. You would think. You know, he why could have does them, he, he could do have... this? Why does he miss open goals again and again and again? And not just now, but for years, Starmer has been missing clear opportunities. I think one of the... I think one of the pan, I think ahead. What's happened is they're, they're literally writing the manifesto as we speak. Last weekend, mm. all the advisors were uh, finalising their chapters they had to submit, and it's going to be a very safety-first manifesto because they're really worried about over-promising. Now, I think they actually should be worried about under-promising yeah. uh, because, as you say, at least having something distinctive to say because, uh, you know, Labour's fear is always 92 election, double, double whammy on tax. You know, is that going to be the playbook again from the Tories? But actually, I think we're, along, we're in a very different environment from that, and there's just such anger and cynicism out there, but actually saying, offering something that it appears to offer hope would be right. It's yeah. better than caution. See, Obviously go, sensible, but not yeah. over-caution. I'm going to harness the anger and cynicism. Surely that's what you want to do, yeah. but that's just me. Uh, we'll see you guys very soon, very soon after this. You're watching the irrepressible Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, we cast our eyes over the latest tragic devil dog death in Essex this time, and they should really start calling it the National Health Disservice, because they can't even fix your teeth at this point. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, when I first went to live in New York in the 1980s, I was almost immediately spotted as being from Britain, not because of my skinny leather ties and post-punk Oxfam jackets, but because of what happened when I laughed. British teeth, they would say. You've got British teeth. And indeed I did. Even though my mother had somehow managed to get a dentist in Harley Street on the NHS, my teeth were not very good. Badly looked after, full of fillings, discoloured and generally very un-American. It was pretty easy to spot. Nowadays, British people save up and travel abroad to get their teeth fixed and veneered so that they look more like American sitcom stars. And if you've got a few quid, that is always an option. But at the bottom of the pyramid now, our nation's teeth have never been in worse shape. More than half of the population don't even have a dentist. One in six children are leaving primary schools with rotten teeth. And even Sir Keir Starmer thinks it's such an emergency that lessons on toothbrushing are needed in the classroom. In some parts of the country, only one third have seen a dentist in the last two years. Many people simply can't get one either for themselves or for their children. 
And this week, the police had to be called to break up a crowd of hundreds who were stuck in a six-hour queue for a newly opened practice in Bristol. They had to send half the people home and ask them to try again the next day. Some had been there since the early hours of the morning, which is a shocking state of affairs. One of the people stuck outside the surgery in the St Paul's district of the city was a disabled cancer patient who had no choice but to brave the cold. The scenes were quite incredible, more like a Soviet-era queue for food than a snapshot of modern Britain in 2024. The truth, however, is worse. Many patients have become so desperate they've taken to pulling out their own teeth. I've spoken to dozens of people on this show who have resorted to DIY extractions. A bottle of whiskey and some pliers are apparently all that is required. It really is that horrific. And after my time in America, I went to the NHS dentist in my local area of London a few years ago. He recommended that I go private. He just didn't think the NHS was capable of looking after me. And he was right. Despite all the tax I'd paid, several thousand pounds later, I got them fixed. And I've been talking about the dreadful state of British dentistry for about five years now. My own children were removed from a list and we couldn't find another place for them to go for months. Yesterday, Sean Charlwood, chair of the British Dental Association's General Dental Practice Committee, condemned the scenes in Bristol. He said, does the future of NHS dentistry involve the police turning away desperate patients? It's just another indication of the dreadful state of the NHS. Can anyone fix it? can't really believe stories like that, can you? People queuing up for a dentist. Incredible. But let's talk about something really more tragic right now. A tearful owner of XL bullies that mauled to death a grandmother in Essex has begged for the breed to be wiped out. Ashley Warren's dogs killed Esther Martin while she was looking after his 11-year-old boy, who was also her grandson. He says he didn't believe the XL bullies were aggressive and would never have bought them as pets if he had. We've got Greg Mokes, who's the owner and editor uh, of K9 magazine. And we've got XL bully dog trainer Fazil Musani with us. Welcome uh, to both of you. Uh, let me start with you, Greg. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to believe, really, watching the video um, of the owner of those dogs that killed um, his son's grandmother, saying he didn't believe the stories, that they were dangerous dogs. I mean, despite everything that's been said, despite the ban that's been put in place by the government, how is he not capable of knowing that? No, I fully agree with you, Mike. I think it's an example that we see all too much of irresponsible dog ownership. I mean, this guy um, was completely against the ban before it happened. Now the ban's in place and this happens under his care of duty, basically. Mm. Then the, the dog's at fault and the ban needs to be upheld. So uh, to me, it, it's absolutely unforgivable. It's a tragedy and uh, the, the owner belongs in jail. And the poor woman was literally ripped apart by these dogs, and it's incredible um, that he didn't think that that could happen. Let me talk to, to, to Fazil. Uh, you're a bully dog trainer, Fazil. Um, you're probably going to tell me that it's the owner's fault, but he, doesn't, I mean, he might look like a bad guy, but I don't think he is a bad guy. I think he just couldn't understand how dangerous these dogs were. Well, all I can say, firstly... I keep being called an XL Bully Dog Trainer. I'm an XL Bully Dog Owner. Okay. Right? I live with five. My five. tiny little self lives with five of these apparently severely dangerous dogs. Right. right? Um, they sleep in bed with me and my fiance. She's only five foot, by the way, just to be clear. Right. What your fiance um, is? My fiance is able to walk them down the street. She can handle them entirely. So you have right? five dogs um, on the bed with you both. Oh, we have six actually. We also got a French bulldog. Crikey! Must be a big bed. 
Yeah, it's only actually a double. I'm, right. I'm not very big. I mean, and it's kind of like playing Tetris. It's one of those things like, look, if you train your dogs, you can achieve anything with them, right? Yeah. The bottom line is, like, like, like Greg just quite rightly said, it's a bit strange that you're completely anti-ban and now suddenly because your irresponsibility has actually come to light and I would say to the, I would quite happily say that the gentleman responsible here um, is, is one of the reasons why people like me are having to, to put my dogs through what I have to, yeah. right? I've got five XL bullies, I've got two intact males, I've got, I've got three females and I've got a French bulldog female as well. Right. They all live in harmony right now. While I'm talking to you, I've got one female and one male in here right now. Right. With me. Right. You can't hear them. Yeah. I just heard a noise. My, my, I mean, my... I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> that might be me fine. OK. Um, What's happened to your hand, I mean, by the way? Have you got an injury? So I was there? actually bit. I was bit. I was bit by a dog. Really? And you know what? The mad thing is, it wasn't an XL bully. Right. You know what's even worse? I was out walking my XL bully. Right. I was conditioning my XL bully to the muzzle. Right. A stray dog came out of, out of an alleyway on the left-hand side. I was engaged with my dog, obviously making sure that he was entirely, you know, happy, you know, yeah. doing, doing everything I wanted to do, you know, comfortable. Um, the dog came out and just literally grabbed hold of his face. Ah. And what did um, he do? What did your dog do? He, well, he squealed. He had a right. muzzle on. Right. He couldn't, he couldn't react. And if I'm honest with you, as a dog lover, a dog trainer, I'm happy that my dog couldn't react. I'm happy that a dog, another dog didn't get hurt. Yeah. Yeah, again, I'm, what I'm going to put And did you find the owner of this dog or was it just a stray? Just a stray. It literally popped out of, popped out of an alleyway, grabbed hold of my dog's face. Right. I had to remove him from... And thankfully, as a dog trainer, I know how to, and it's something that I'd like to touch on as well. I think it's really important for people to learn about how to break up a dog fight, mm. how to behave if a dog does react to you, right? You know, these sorts of things. And in particular, I think yeah. if you wish to own right. these dogs, the other day I was on a phone with Jay, uh, on, on, this, uh, on a show with James Whale, yeah. and we discussed dog licensing right. at 500 pounds a time or whatever it might cost, yeah? yeah. I think for it's imperative. It's but the bottom, but the bottom line is, Fazil, let me, let me just go back to Greg here. The bottom line is that, you know, for... Uh, the poor woman who's now dead, she had been used to dealing with these dogs, but something changed, something went wrong. And presumably, Greg, you would say that Fazil could also have an incident where one of his dogs could go ballistic for no reason. No, of I doubt he would. I, I, well, highly doubt he would. I, I highly doubt he would face that issue because there's a myth that a dog will snap. A dog tells you several things. We are not focusing on education. We ignored the empirical evidence of the failure of the implementation of the 1991 Dangerous Dog Act. Mike, we have more pit bull attacks and more pit bulls in the United Kingdom now than before the 1991 ban. Mm. And we repeated the same formula. Let's get into education. Let's make it harder to own a dog. We need fewer dog owners, quite frankly. The barrier to owning a dog which is potentially lethal in the wrong hands, depending on the size of the yeah. dog. The barrier is way too low, right. way too low. And the problem is there's money in it. That's the trouble, isn't it? People make the money from, from breeding these dogs. So it's too easy. So enforce the laws, right? It should not be so easy. The gentleman whose grandmother was unfortunately killed had puppies up for sale mm. just last year after, uh, after the announcement of the bully ban, right? Not the behaviour of responsible dog ownership from my judgy perspective, maybe. Yeah. 
Well, let me come back finally to you, Faz, because at the end of the day, I've been told by very different dog um, experts and dog specialists that there is um, some DNA mixing that's been going on here, that these dogs have been bred sometimes to fight, sometimes to be um, dangerous. And I know you can say that yours are not dangerous, but, you know, the potential for them, if they were to ever become dangerous, to kill is much worse than a lot of other dogs. <laughs> I think, look, I think what it comes down to in, in reality is that, yes, of course, they're absolutely capable, right? But so is Anthony Joshua, so is Conor McGregor. And you know the truth is? Yeah, but these people put them on a the lead or muzzle them, do you? I know, but imagine, <laughs> God forbid, if they got into an altercation with, with people like me or you. Yeah. Would that be fair? Well, no. Because they're more muscular, they're yeah. more trained, That's they're the more thing. conditioned. No, I get, I get that point. Listen, we've got to stop because we're, we're out of time. Listen, very interesting. We'll have to get you both back on again for longer because this I needs to be sorted to out. We can't have any more people you. dying as a result of dangerous dogs trained badly by people who don't know what they're doing. You're watching the one and only independent Republican Mike Graham. It's time to sound the alarm. Islamist armies are storming the capital. Meanwhile, hundreds of police officers handed in their firearms permits, leaving the public vulnerable. It's is this country safe anymore? See you after the break. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Good evening and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, the Met Police's prestigious firearms unit hemorrhages staff with hundreds of armed cops deserting the department in the past six months after their colleague was charged with the murder of Chris Cabber. Paris is set to triple parking charges for some SUVs after a landmark vote passed this weekend and the Ukrainian-born Miss Japan hands back her title amid reports of her having an affair with a married man. Weeks of heated public debate on her eligibility. Now, this past weekend, like every other weekend since October the 7th, London's streets were filled with people chanting for jihad, a free Palestine, and from the river to the sea, a call for the eradication of Israel as a nation state. In one banner, the protesters called for it by any means necessary. Effectively, as some critics have noted, a call for genocide of the people of Israel. These protests began the very same weekend that Hamas butchered and tortured thousands of people at the behest of their Iranian paymasters, taking hundreds of innocent men, women and children hostage. Over 130 of them, including a baby, are still being held beneath the streets of Gaza in a labyrinth of dark tunnels hundreds of feet deep, with reports that more of them have died just tonight. Every weekend since October the 7th, the police have been at pains to point out why they haven't arrested more people, how they have allowed anti-Semitic behaviour on the march, Hamas posters, ISIS flags and intimidation. Jewish people on the streets of London are in fear sometimes of their lives. Last week it seemed the Met had finally seen sense. On the announcement of yet another march planned for Saturday from Maribyrn to Whitehall, the police stated that the march would not be allowed to enter Whitehall or get too close to Downing Street. 
They argued that the good people of London had put up with enough marches, enough disruption, and it was time they made a stand. But of course, come Saturday, the marchers did exactly as they wanted. They didn't stop until they got all the way down Whitehall. And as usual, the protesters clambered all over war memorials and statues, disrespecting the memory of the war dead. They don't care for our war dead, of course. Why would they? So now the government have had to get involved. Only this week, Home Secretary James Cleverly announced a ban on climbing on war memorials with the punishment of a £1,000 fine and even jail. The lefties, of course, have immediately cried foul. It's a terrible infringement of human rights, they say. We should all have the right to protest. Well, not every bloody week you don't. And I'm sorry, I'm with the Home Secretary on this. They should just stop doing it. Come to think of it, they should stop marching altogether. They never call for the release of the hostages. They have no time for anyone who disagrees with them. And they are frequently involved in intimidatory behaviour. Ordinary Londoners have had enough. Only last night, a group of Islamists forced a theatre to reject an event that had been planned for months by our very own Douglas Murray, simply because they didn't agree with what might have been said at the event. They chanted, they ranted, and they rallied outside the central London theatre, even after the event had been moved somewhere else. It's absolutely ridiculous and out of hand now. It's time to call a halt to this distinctly un-British behaviour. Now, later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at a story from inside the sun uh, for tomorrow morning. And there's lots and lots of, on King Charles, of course. And this one has a headline that says, Flying Visit. Harry's 5,000-mile dash to the UK. King Delane's own flight for him. But there's no reunion with William. It's a pretty categorical statement of the facts there. Charles starts his treatment for cancer. Harry has a meeting with him for about 45 minutes, but he doesn't actually see his brother and doesn't seem to be any plans for them to meet up either but we'll have more of that uh, when the panel returns of course but let's now talk about hundreds of firearms specialists because they've left the metropolitan police in less than a year after widespread anger over an officer being charged with the murder of chris cabber between april and december 2023 the force has lost more than 250 authorized firearms officers and that's about one in 10. In a moment, I'll speak to retired Metropolitan Police Superintendent Leroy Logan here in the studio. But first, somebody who knows all about this is Harry Tangy, former armed response officer and author. Harry, very good evening to you. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Are you surprised that so many officers have left? No, not at all. Um, I think they're thinking, well, there's what else can they do? Uh, are they seriously going to risk being charged with murder now? Um, they, they've always known that they are open to be judged in the eyes of the law. That's always the case. But they've always hoped that they would be treated differently from some random, um, say, gang leader or a bank robber who then shoots a member of the public um, to actually comparing it with them, professional police officers, huge amount of training, and actually shoot 0.05% uh, of the time, one in 2,000 farms incidents. So they're not trigger happy. Mm. Um, and they're just voting with their feet. And you think it's just London. It won't be just London, I can assure you. Um, maybe when London sneezes, the rest of the country catches the cold. They are very nervous, armed response officers are now. And they think, well, actually, I can cut this risk out. And their family's saying, you can cut this risk out. I don't want you being with that, doing that job anymore. It's thankless. And the chances are 
as opposed to a couple of years ago, you you now have a huge amount of chance of being um, judged from above. I get the idea, sorry to whittle on here, but I get the idea, and this is what people are telling me, that because of social media and communication, that that decision's being shoved up a bit more in the interests of public um, interest. Mm. And, well, they don't need to do that, so they're not. They're going to do a job where they don't risk being charged with murder. So, uh, Leroy, welcome to the show. I mean, do they leave the police force altogether? Do they go and do different jobs in the police? Um, and do you have sympathy for these guys? Well, first, let me say, I'm not a firearms officer, but as a senior leader in the Met for 30 years, I know the, the need for them, the very expertise, very dedicated, like Harry. Uh, and uh, it is, to some extent, a thankless task, like policing... It in is, general, right the across moment, the board, at the moment, it yeah. is a thankless task. But no, um, but they're handing in their ticket, so that basically means they go back to um, other duties and not in the armed response vehicles or special specialist firearms officers, because they're they're the ones that are called on when they are dealing with a violent person or an armed person, and it's commensurate with the risk. But as um, Harry said, everyone knows that. Uh, when you apply for these jobs, um, even if you don't shoot and kill someone or you shoot and injure someone, you will be subject mm. to scrutiny. Now, the Crown Prosecution Service, they have their internal uh, CPS who look at these things, and, and so they do know the, the nuances of being a firearms officer and the, and the challenges they have to face, and as a result of that, they will be very, very careful on not just leaving those officers out to dry, much less then putting it forward for uh, the case to go to court. Mm. Uh, and invariably, um, it's not always just the, the public interest. It's around, is it proportionate? Is it necessary? And um, is that action accountable? And one of the main forms of accountability is being put to the courts. But that's one of the problems, isn't it, Harry? Because the whole reason for an awful lot of people leaving is this identification situation, isn't it, with the uh, the killer uh, or the police officer who shot Chris Cabber. I mean, we had a, an incident in, just in London a couple of weeks ago, um, or maybe even last week, down in Surrey Keys, where an intruder was trying to get into a home. The armed police were called. They shot him dead. That right. officer is now presumably being investigated and isn't working. And they understand that. And in the old days, I was involved with uh, post-incident management um, with post-shootings. I was in firearms for 23 years um, and VIP protection and so on. We all understood that in the old days, you'd get the, well, detective superintendent come along and treat it like a murder because that's the only way they knew to do it, how to do it, to investigate it. Then they suddenly realised that police officers really should be treated as witnesses until there is some evidence to show that, nah, this is really different. This is somebody who's gone renegade, who's just gone off on one and randomly shot someone, or there's been involved in a domestic incident and involved something. That's clear, and that will be quite clear early on. But when you've got a spontaneous incident, like the one you've just mentioned, fast flowing, bang, 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 and they will have been trained on that time and time again. And a lot of the time, a lot of these exercises that they're given is, well, are they suffering from mental health? Are they autistic? Okay, well, just change your tone now on your challenge. And then let's see if we can not rush them into a decision if we right. don't need to. It's very much involved in that 14-week course, and it was 50% failure rate until they were very much stricter on the selection. So these are very, very skilled officers, and they just want to be treated like... Uh, they want to treat it really as witnesses, always be judged by the law, but the fear now, this is 
this is Mao to precedent now. Okay, now they're worried. I don't want this because you don't want to be a copper in a prison, yeah. especially when you've been firearms, been nicking the worst people in our society. Right. You don't want to be there. And even so, if they're cleared at a jury and whatever, that is two years, three years of right. hell. So, in your, so hell. in your view, then, should they not be naming this officer in the Chris Cabber case? Well, I say, why are they naming him? Right? And the, the judge said they can see no reason why nothing, it, it couldn't be mitigated. And I looked up the word because I use mitigate quite a lot, but the definition was basically to minimize a bad circumstance. Yeah. We can avoid the bad circumstance by not naming him. What are we achieving here apart from a bit of voyeurism? Why yeah. are we naming him? Because his kids, if he's got kids and they're in school and they're young and whatever, they're going to say, oh, your daddy's a murderer. This yeah. is what happens to friends of mine that have been involved in shootings. It's And then you've got some of the most violent people in society who are not most friendly with police, knowing where they are. And the judge said, well, we're not going to give his date of birth or his address. I'm sorry. Really? Yeah. In 2024? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's not, that's not exactly a safeguard, is it? Leroy, what, what do you think about this identification process? Well, I, I mean, that's the court's interpretation. Yeah. You know, it's not like um, the, the Met have said... Um, divulge his name. I mean, I, I was investigated in the Met 20-odd years ago, yeah. and my name is trial by media. Well, it didn't go to, to court, but my name was um, out there, mm. and my, my youngest son, he was 10 at the time, sorry, 11, just started secondary school, and he was told, oh, your dad's a uh, uh, prisoner, or, or he's going to be going to prison, and he's dishonest. Yeah. And so I know the impact of that, and I, and I do feel for the officers. Mm. Um, even this officer involved in Chris Cabber's case. But it's like everything. I would like... The CPS and the courts are, are, are dealing with this. This is not senior leadership. Mm. And unfortunately, we can't um, judge how the courts are going to do this. They're seeing it, is it in the public interest? And um, because of these circumstances, um, he, he, they're putting out his name. I, I but presumably it got to the court because the police said that there was a problem with the way that the shooting happened. Yeah, well, the so they put him. In, they put him in the frame, haven't they? No, no, no. no. But they, they have to investigate it, the internal investigation, and then that goes to the CPS, and the CPS then decide mm. if there's um, a good chance of um, securing a conviction, right. and then that goes um, to the courts. Right. So it. You, it, if you've got a problem, it's with the CPS, yeah. who then put it to the courts and the courts. Well, I would say, well, I'd ask Harry, Harry, would you say that that's the fault of the police who have put him up in place as a sort of... As no, a, as no, a... it's, it's nothing to do with them, because when there's a shooting, you get an um, you get an initial investigating officer that just holds the scene, makes sure that there's yeah. you've got the witnesses, that the scene isn't contaminated, and then that's very, very quickly taken over by the IOPC and take it on from then on. Yeah. And the police um, have very little... Well, they don't have any dealings with it at all. What I would say is there needs to be some stronger leadership, mm. and that is what is what resources, like officers, feel is hugely missing. Thrown under the bus, thrown mm. under the bus. There's no specific complaint that the police have put them in a position where they're being charged, all right? But they do sort of think, whenever this is happening, it's like senior officers immediately thinking, oh, careers, um, yeah. we've got the people who loud the shout the loudest and perhaps haven't got the best to say. They've got other other uh, intentions. And, uh, I, I, we, and they just go quiet yeah. and they say nothing. Um, and they just need a little bit more support and to say, no, 
we're, you know, these officers are trained. Yeah. We've got to wait to the end of it. And they don't even summarise it by saying we've got to wait to the end of it because, uh, um, but we have full faith in our officers, the training and things like this yeah. and the other. There has to be an investigation. But there's nothing. There's very mm. little. And that's where the problem is, Leroy. It seems to me that, you know, maybe you're going to say the same thing happened to you, but they don't, they're not, it doesn't seem like they're protecting their own. It seems like they're kind of throwing them to the wolves. And I know there's a process, I get that, but it seems that the police could be more on side with their own officers. Well, I, I know that uh, the Commissioner Mark Rowley, mm. he had a meeting with all the firearms officers or the main representatives of, of various units and discussed it with him that, and he said, he was going to reassure them that, um, that his name would not be divulged. And, and again, but it's not in his gift mm. to do that. Um, I know that they are even going down the road of saying, um, judge firearms officers like how you judge a doctor. Right. It's more on neglect. And so they're, they're looking at that sort of framework right. of assessing um, where things have gone wrong. Because I, I know if you look at it very, um, very clinically, forgive the pun, um, the proportionate and necessary and accountable piece might not always lend itself to a fast-moving instant reaction right. and, of course, someone ended up dead. So I know that they're doing that, but that's going to take time. Yeah. And, and I, but I would like to think the officers um, will reconsider because we need them. Uh, and because certain people are very violent, as we know from even the, um, the, the Clapham Common... Um, incident yeah. with the alkaline attack. So we've got some really violent people. Would you out have there. more? Would you have more police armed than there are? It's, I, I don't think it's just about uh, numbers. I think we need certain iconic sites, uh, you know, transport hubs, airports, all these sort of people. We need farms officers there, and we need um, real intelligence to deploy officers at the right place at the right time. So it's not just about numbers. Um, I think it's. Um, I think a lot of it is around prevention before cure. Yeah. You know, we have to get that early intervention work to prevent people to even want to carry a knife or a gun. Yeah. Um, so I think it's both. We need your deployed mm. specialist officers, uh, firearms and otherwise, and then you need your community cops to get in there to, uh, to spot these people before they get tooled up and want to use well, it. Exactly. Well, Harry, let me, let me end with you. I mean, we are living in a much more violent society, you know, do we need more yeah. police officers to be armed? And also, if we right. are losing this many, are we actually at, at some kind of risk now? With the, the pressures are huge as an armed responsible response officer because you're constantly being assessed. Four days intensive training. And then I was a farms tactics advisor, farms and uh, operational farms commander. So more training, more experience. If you've lost those, you've got a lot of making up and it's going to take you eight years before you get there. I sort of disagree with um, Leroy there because it's not the prime sites that need to be. The, where the most violence occurs is in an ordinary street in the middle of our village, in the middle of our towns and cities. And you need the numbers just to cover the shifts because you've got some in the county forces um, where you are travelling. I would be on a blue light run for an hour, you know, and mm. so... If you and I've, I've even I've even uh, directed officers onto the helicopter to be dropped off with a, a panda car to collect them to get them to a scene quicker where some guy was putting the machete through a, a traffic jam full of windscreens. Mm. So you you just it, it is numbers. It's really important maintaining getting the right people who are in the population enough to to produce those. So it's not all London, obviously, um, and then to that they pass the training continually. And they're ready to put up the stress. And the minor thing is, I've got 
migraines all the time when I was in the police. When I left, I haven't had one since. And that shows, shows something. Mm. They just want backing and they just don't want to be hung out to dry, not necessarily by police officers, by the senior officers, which is shocking. They're more managers and leaders in a lot of cases, not all, of course. But they just want to be treated like witnesses, professional witnesses, unless, of course, it's absolutely obvious. Yeah. Harry, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Harry Tang, New York Logan as well. Nice to see you. Um, one of those situations that we'll need to talk about some more, it would seem to me. We do, I think, need many more police officers in general uh, with the streets getting as dangerous as they now are. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, find out how quick-thinking cosmonaut Oleg Konenenko has avoided the long arm of Vladimir Putin's draft. And something sinister is going on uh, inside a Premier League football team. Newcastle United has been spying on fans. More on this after the break. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Apparently in Russia, it is almost impossible to avoid the long arm of Vladimir Putin's draft, but one man has sought to replace the cold and misery of the Eastern Front with the cold and misery of space. That's right, in an attempt to avoid the drab, desolate wastelands of the former Soviet Union, cosmonaut Oleg Kononenko is trying to stay in space for 1,000 days, despite freezing temperatures, muscle deterioration, blood cell loss, and limited amounts of tasteless astronaut grub. The experience will be a marked improvement, though, on life in communist Russia. The grim existence, though, is preferable as well to a modern life on Earth. Who can blame him? If the Russian army beat Ukraine, the first thing they'll do uh, is queue up behind the dinghies. Warm houses with their own engines, obviously. Uh, the cost of energy, though, is so high. Uh, that is, if diesel engines are still legal. Then they're going to house the migrants in their own barracks, all after paying ULEZ charges on their tanks. You know what? I don't blame him. I'd rather sit in a tin can, take my protein pills and put my helmet on. Get it? Now, the Free Speech Union has taken on a case after a Newcastle United supporter found the club was spying on her for unwoke posts, slapping over the stadium ban stretching until 2026. This unnamed shadow group within the Premier League has been revealed to be spying on regular supporters' online posts. Here's Toby Young interviewing Lindsay Smith after taking on the case. So when did you find out that Newcastle had placed you under investigation? It was the 1st of November. There was an email from the security complaints saying that I was under investigation for a hate crime. Um, and for that reason, I'd had to suspend my membership. So. And when did you find out exactly what this hate crime was that you'd supposedly committed? And eventually, they gave in and said, um, sent me an email saying that I'd posted on um, social media things that could be dis uh, seen as transphobic. So um, that was pretty much all I got, you know? But what you'd said wasn't what people would normally consider hate speech, let no. alone a hate crime. You'd said things like you didn't think trans women were women, you didn't think if you were born with a penis that you could self-identify or become a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much I said uh, trans women are men. And I said, I'll be able to say I never stood by that and never accepted it. Um, and that's another one I was questioned for. I mean, aside from the fact that football clubs and football organisations are not exactly sort of um, the pretenders to the throne of the protection of our moral dignity, they've suddenly decided to go after this woman. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And, and we, I was talking to Toby Young about this the other day. You know, how many other people have had their, you know, social media um, spied upon to see what they're saying? She's a lesbian. Yeah. She's supportive of LGBT rights. Yeah. She has not 
there's no, there was no suggestion that she was going to incite violence no. at a match or that she was going to express her gender-critical views at a football match. Mm. She literally did nothing wrong. They were trying to find out where she lived. Right. And the irony, Mike, is that Newcastle United are owned by whom? The Saudis. Saudis. Yeah. Who are t famously kind of tolerant and uh, gay-friendly yes. and, and all of this. It's absolutely ludicrous. It is you couldn't make it up, could you? 11-page dossier. Yeah. <laughs> of, of a Saudi-run club, mm. uh, 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 you know, uh, singling out a, a lesbian fan because something just said on social media. But this media. is more the <laughs> Premier League, isn't it, than Newcastle? Is it, is it not? Well, the, yeah, I mean, I don't know they supplied it. Yeah. Then the club has actually enforced the ban, so it's gone along with it. A two-year yeah. ban. Right. Even though the police said to her, the police spoke to her and said they had a two-hour interview. The police her house, apparently. Uh, the police took just two hours to inform her she'd not committed any crime. Right. So, what, so if, if even the police yeah, are saying that, yeah. they're coming so if, she, yeah. if she hasn't committed any crime, should football clubs be the moral arbiter of whether someone can go well, into the game? Well, I don't think the moral arbiter very much, to be honest, football yeah. clubs. Yeah, I mean, but this hold is the on same... a minute. They've had football hooliganism, drunken rampages, right. violence, and all sorts over the last yeah. few weeks. That's the just the players. Country. Yeah, that's <laughs> just the players. <laughs> it's a certain so, one on the So there is stuff they could be investigating. Yeah, of course. Real stuff. Oh, totally. But then you wonder what else they're going to look at. Are they going to look yeah. at every single fan? Would you have to sign up to a, a list of um, you know, restrictions yeah. or, or the, the you know, moral code just to go to I a mean, I hope they game. don't have any conversations or listen in on any conversations that some of the players have with each other exactly. about some of these issues uh, of moral standing because I think they might find that they have to suspend half the team. Well, I think the other worrying thing here is, although obviously it's not a court-based prosecution, it's got a whiff of the post office, hasn't it? Yeah. Of people of corporations, uh, uh, companies yeah. taking into their own hands to investigate. When the police have said there's nothing to answer, and yeah. that's what strikes me is it's it's it's, it's part of this very bad precedent. Mm. It really is a bad precedent, but hopefully it will change now that this is, the light has been shone it. Thankfully, by the Free Speech Union, so we'll see. I want to talk to you about a guy called Kyrie Sadala. You might not remember this guy, but he was the one who stabbed three people in Reading in a park. I think it was after some kind of pride march, some kind of pride event, a couple of years ago, um, 2020. In fact, it was. Um, he stabbed Joseph Ritchie Bennett, James Furlong and David uh, Wells. There's an inquest currently going on at the Old Bailey uh, in which the Home Office are admitting to woeful inadequacy because, of course, believe it or not, it's yet another um, illegal migrant who came to this country, not on a dinghy, but he came to this country, I think, with his father on a, on a, on a tourist visa, um, overstayed, was not able to be sent back to his, um, uh, his country of Libya because there was a civil war on. And so, basically, he was allowed to stay here, but he kept applying for asylum and he kept being turned down. And it just seems to me, in the wake of, um, you know, the chemical attacker, who is apparently still on the run, nobody seems to be very sure whether he's still alive or not. There's new footage of him um, in another part of London from later on, uh, on I think, Wednesday night. Um, but this is incredible, you know. Uh, they've got a woman from the Home Office there basically saying that uh, his, his application for asylum was in limbo for a number of years. Um, he was ineligible to be deported because of the civil law, the civil war rather, um, and somebody from the um, Home Office's sort of organisation that was supposed to be in charge of all of this said that they made error after error after error, and there were three people dead, and you just wonder where this is all going to go. It seems on a lot of these cases there's multiple failures across yeah. Yeah. all the different institutions, whether it's the police, yeah. the NHS, uh, the Home Office, mental health services. There's the lack of joined up thinking. Mm. So when so when something does go wrong in in one area, people just slip through the net yeah. sometimes. And this is this is. But this there is seems the to be issue. a lot of people slipping through the net. Mm. Like Valdo Calacan, yeah. yeah. 
who, who hadn't been taking his meds, was a violent right. schizophrenic. As you say, the, yeah. uh, the mental health services were not joined up with the police, were not joined up with any of mm. the kind of asylum system, the home office. And, and it sort of sounds exaggerated, Mike, but these people have blood on their hands. They when do. People, yeah. When people are killed, when he has been turned down for asylum, yeah. why are they then not removed from the country? It really You get a fair hearing or, and I mean, you what's are denied it. He must have come on a tourist visa from Libya. Yeah. But obviously, because of the civil war, you can't send somebody back right. to Libya, although somebody can go back if they yes. were, you know, sticking to the rules of their tourist visa. But there's a thing on the left called intersectionality, which yeah. is, you know, when you have you know, more than one, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, minority issue shoes yeah. come together. So, you know, you're a black woman, for example. Well, obviously here, we've just put the two stories together. You know, there's an issue here with protecting this as a pride march. I think at least two of the victims mm. were gay. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, of course, you know, whose who's rights come first? Yeah. Because you have to actually balance things out. And that's what well, I, I think, don't you know, think people on the left, quandary, that's really, a really big question. Yeah, is what but you for do? people on the left, you know, murderer uh, or gay people, I think the gay people surely One would have hope so, yeah, absolutely. Wherever he's from. Yeah, absolutely. One would hope so. And, it, and I think, I think that's it's a lesson for people that actually, if anybody on the left, um, uh, 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 you know, the sort of liberal left, as it were, is saying that, you know, we shouldn't be tough on immigration. This reminds you why we actually need to see mm. who's coming in and get rid of people who are. Yeah, I mean, they've got Prevent involved in this Home Office uh, inquest as well, in which there are several members of the prison that he was in, several other people that were in prison with him. In meetings with him, they would have these group meetings where he would say that he was looking forward to getting out chopping people up, you know, because you wanted to kill some people. There's messages, there's like warning signs, you know, alarm bells should be ringing at every single stage, but it just seems to be not, not picking up. You know, did he speak to a prison guard? Did he speak to a fellow inmate? Did he tell a family relative? Yeah. Are they speaking to all these people to find out exactly what's going on? They're clearly not. It's a very, very bad situation. And again, you know, the Clapham situation is and, still ongoing. And, I was and this guy to... seemingly would be, I would imagine, the police say he's still not to be approached, he's still dangerous. He's been all over London. I was speaking to a security expert who said to me, do you know what I'd do? He said I'd put on a burqa. And I suddenly thought, yeah. he could just be walking around yeah. London in a burqa. He could. I mean, I'm not... That sounds horrible but to anyone who wears a niqab or a burqa. But this man could be walking around as a woman in a full face and veil yeah. covering, and I wouldn't um, know, you wouldn't know. Well, he, do you remember there was a case a few years ago of somebody who escaped from the country because of that exact disguise? Uh, and it was a man, and because the burqa was being worn, Nobody Why would dared you, you to wouldn't sort of stop ask. Exactly. No. No, you but... can't search every single person in a burqa wandering around the, the UK. But, I mean, that is how simple it is. Mm. It really is. And it is still, to me, ridiculous that the first 24 hours went without them giving out a description of him. They just didn't do it. It was so obvious the description of him was so obvious when you saw right. that first image. Well, when you like, saw it, yeah. And then we saw... It was like a one-line description. Was they, the police were frightened. One of the busiest the underground stations yeah. in, in the... Yeah. In the whole country. But the police were frightened of identifying him um, as somebody from another country because they were worried that, you know, there would be some kind of, you know, anti-immigrant backlash. Well, sorry, when the public uh, safety is concerned, surely that's what they should be doing. And I saw uh, uh, the police put out uh, a notice today that they actually put um, his, his native language, you know, went to the community. Yeah. They should have been doing that in the first few hours. Yeah. They should have been hitting... The Afghan community right. in London, all those communities that right. you know, they may Even deal with. Even putting out a reward, which exactly. probably should be a lot higher, and, and talking to them and saying, right. look, we'll give you this money if you see him yeah. or whatever. It took so about no... four or five days before the reward. Oh, it? and they yeah. were complacent. First about... couple of hours, we'll find him within a couple yeah. of hours. Right. No, they didn't, and they lost those crucial opportunities. Yeah. And these people who are now 
uh, of the mind that then if, if you're converting to Christianity, that must be okay then. And you just go... This is really dangerous. Well, I'm proud to say Labour today has said it will crack down on it before the government. So, um, uh, said that it's, it certainly thinks that this needs, as a root, converting to Christianity needs to be uh, certainly uh, nailed down as a... You know, so that we don't yeah, but it's a bit late, that. isn't it? Yeah, well, we're not in government, so... Uh, but, yeah, you absolutely. Know. I mean, it's, it's tough, because after the Liverpool um, incident where the guy who uh, yeah. tried to run the maternity unit, they went to Liverpool Cathedral and the guy said that in his experience, every single person who converted from Islam to Christianity had been an asylum seeker. Yeah. There'd been no from within the UK uh, who, who already had the right to stay who'd converted. That's just an absolute fact. Right. But, you know, so it doesn't take your genius to work out that maybe there's something going on. Yeah. Well, but when you get so many people from the Bibby Stockholm suddenly decided they want to, you know, worship Christ, you kind of go, really? Do you? There's about That's 40, 40 or 50 on the, on the boat who yeah. converted. Yeah. I mean, but uh, they can convert to whatever they want, but it shouldn't buy give one, them get any... One it should not absolutely. give them a, a fast track to asylum. Mm, absolutely right. Totally. Now, um, what about Ukraine-born Miss Japan? We t I don't know if you guys were here last time we talked about her, um, where she wasn't very welcome in Japan because she didn't look Japanese. But apparently now she's had to resign mm. because she had an affair with a married man. How terribly old-fashioned. I don't know, with the whole thing about her, there was the issue about her not being... Was it not being Japanese? Well, she's not, not, she's not, she's not ethnically. She's not she ethnically doesn't have Japanese. a drop of Japanese blood right. in her. I think if, she, if she's from... You know, she's lived she's there. She's been she's living there since she was five. She's she's yeah. I've got yeah. no, no problem with her being Miss Japan, but it's, yeah, it's, it's strange that it's been... You know, revoked over the well. So she's, she's, she's resigned. Yeah. She's resigned yeah. it. I think uh, she's done the honourable well, thing. Somebody's kind of got it in for it. Yes. To me. Yeah, they have, Absolutely. and they've found out this thing about her affair. It might yeah. be this kind of ultra nationalist um, organisations, which you do can get in Japan still. I mean, it's kind of uh, got to got to in a sense, which is outrageous because she's obviously an advert for a modern um, cosmopolitan open well, Japan, to the world, Japan. But Japan is not particularly welcoming, and they are sort of famously well racist, basically. Yeah. But it is it is a tiny bit weird. quite monocultural, you, have, you would say. If you have a um, um, if you have a, a competition <laughs> called Miss Japan, it is it is a tiny bit strange that someone who isn't um, Japanese in any way, her mother and her father aren't Japanese, but then again, she has lived there since she was yeah. five, and she sounded as though she absolutely adored, you know, I mean, she said, I'm and she speaks Japanese, linguistically right. Japanese, I love this country, la, la, yeah. la, la, la. I think one of the things who that knows? surprised many of us here when the story first came out was that they still have beauty contests and beauty pageants with people who are actually, you know, going into the, you know... Like it's the 70s. Yeah, yeah, the there. whole thing there's yeah. more than a whiff of the 70s, isn't it? Eric yeah. in a velvet suit. Yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, and then the swimsuit round. And you're kind of going, I don't know if they had one, but, you know, it's all a bit sort of. But retro, don't we have that? Well, I mean, we have that everywhere. We have that in France. We have that all over the world. Yeah. I don't think we have them here. We don't anymore. still do no, it here, though. I, do I haven't seen anything even in the newspapers about Miss World for no, a long, no. long time. I was going to say, I don't think we do Miss World anymore. I think you're allowed to choose whether you have a, a swimsuit round or not. But obviously, if you don't do the swimsuit round, then you don't win. Yes. A bit I think this it's world still exists. Yeah. Oh, I now, here's know. one for you, since we're talking about a, a justice. In Kazakhstan, apparently they're passing a law which will mean that they can surgically remove the genitals of paedophiles. What do you Eek. make of that? I can see you sort of... Uh, see the men uh, crossing their legs. Men crossing their legs. But, you know, I mean, a lot of people have said it here. They've, they've basically said that chemical castration doesn't work, um, so we need something that's a bit more of a deterrent. I'm not sure even the popcorns would be uh, would be checking that. I'm not sure. Haven't I think the popcorns missed a trick actually? I don't think they <laughs> didn't pick this one up earlier on today, so I don't know what they would say. I mean, I think no, you can't do that. You can't castrate people. The state no. doing stuff like that is slightly worrying, I suppose, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I'm sure there are other restrictions you probably have to look at first, like a, like a sex offenders register I mean, or I mean, they, prison. I mean, they could, prison. They could <laughs> do it in. I mean, they could do some of these things in other countries, and and you know we wouldn't really have any say in it. I mean, we don't really have any say in Kazakhstan either. I'm sure in the Middle East uh, there are some countries where they give you some pretty nasty punishments, yeah, like chopping off your hands, hands and, things, and maybe yeah. they do this as well. I don't know.
I yep. mean, I know people who, who live in the Middle East who tell me there's not very many sex offences going on there because people would not really like to be punished as a result of what they would, might be doing. You know. I, I can't see this happening coming anytime soon to the party manifesto. I'm not sure leaving but, the ECHR yeah. would be enough to get it through no, the British courts. I don't think so. It would be a good deterrent. Yeah, absolutely. Now, finally, the big one of the night for me, can you put warm food in the fridge? Apparently there's been a huge row over this because various different sort of, you know, chefs and um, food specialists have been arguing about whether or not it's a good idea to leave something out on the counter until it cools down yeah. and then put it in the fridge or put it in the fridge when it's still warm. What do I you do? I tend to wait. Do you? I, I wait a good See, they say that could cool. be bad for you. Oh, really? Oh, God. They say right. that the food, there's more likely to be more germs on it if you leave it on the counter than if you put it in the I fridge. always leave food to cool down and then you put the lid on and then yeah. you put it in. Otherwise, you get all that condensation yeah. and you put it in the fridge and that's not good. not good. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean, but it, I mean, that's, that is a revelation. I, I've learned something tonight. Well, you, I hope well, so. What have this you learned? Which way? But you're meant to put it in before when it's still warm. Yeah. Because Are you because sure, then, Mike? Because that, yeah. that's... Not hot, right? Because yeah. if you put it in too hot, obviously that's going to mess the fridge up and you're going to screw up the temperature of the inside of the fridge. Mm. But if you have it at, say, more, if it's, if it's warm to the touch, mm. you should put it in the fridge if it's not okay. too hot. There's often an aroma, isn't it, when it's quite warm? So you yeah. don't that's then smelling the fridge out, yes. maybe. So yeah. think about that as well. It's interesting. I mean, same with the freezer. I mean, would you put something in a freezer that was not completely cold? No, yes. I'd wait until it cooled down. Yeah, would you? Yeah, I think so. So you say you've done, like, new potatoes, you've yeah. done a can of new potatoes and you've got some left over. Yeah. I'd leave them to cool. I'd put them in the Tupperware, yeah. leave them to cool off, mm. pop the lid on and then put it in the fridge. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, maybe you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Well, you know, we're all going to have to go home and change our behaviour. I don't yeah. know, is it dangerous? Well, some people say that if you leave it on... I mean, obviously, it depends on the temperature of the room. There's different rules, though, things like meat. I mean, like, if you're on holiday in somewhere like... I mean, I went to Italy um, last year. Was it last year? The year before, I can't remember. Anyway, the guy brought these... this amazing garden, and he used to put all this fruit on, in the kitchen. Mm. Um, but after about three or four days, it was starting to get a bit rotten, yeah. you know? <laughs> and it looked amazing, but if you didn't eat it, you know, it's going to go off. So if you're in a hot country, obviously... Yeah you're going to leave things out less, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. Right. So, presumably, if you leave it out too long and it's too warm, you might well, end up getting some kind of salmonella. We're talking about a British kitchen, which isn't, like, burning hot. It's not Can 90 be. degrees. In the summer, you've forgotten what In the summer, it's different. Like. But there are different rules for different things. Meat and fish, you need to be a lot more careful about temperatures than mm. things like, I don't know, yeah. an egg or milk or cheese or something. Yeah, true. I've got a weird video to show you just before we go to have a look at the papers. This is a very strange competition, which apparently goes on every single year. Um, and it's a load of international teams of police officers. I think we've got it, I think we've got it here, yeah. So they basically, you know, it's a sort of Olympics for the police, right? And the only reason I'm showing you this is this is the Chilean SWAT team. So it's definitely right? not British police. No, are not British police because they couldn't run that They can't pass, run. Right? For some reason, the Chileans decided to enter a women's team, which is not the point of why I'm showing you this. But I just find it very, very odd that this sort of thing happens around the world at least once a year. And this is them, and they have to get across this ice um, um, sort of... Crevasse, and if they fall fun. in, they've lost. Yeah, but unfortunately, they didn't do very well. So well, they're about to fall oh. in. This is like gladiators. I know. It's a wipeout. But I mean, can you imagine if the police in this country went and did something like that? I don't think we actually had any representatives there, but probably wise. Yeah, probably wise. I mean, they haven't got enough money as it is. They say they can't police. I think they're like ninety percent of them are obese. Yeah, can't. They definitely the couldn't Jeep. do any they of that. They can only run from their cop car to the McDonald's. Right. I mean, it's a shame actually because we were just talking about the armed police that are now giving up the job because yeah. they're not getting protected. Yeah. They're actually the best police we've got because they know what they're doing. That is the worrying thing, handing mm. over their, their yeah. license. Yeah, handing them back. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you want and to? Why, yeah. yeah, because this guy who's going to get uh, identified, it must be a nightmare for him and his family. Because mm. it's all very well them saying, oh, we're not going to give his address out. 
really. I think, yeah, you know... It doesn't take long. It's 2024. It? I think it's hard to find people. Yeah. Anyway, um, you're watching the Supreme Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Brace yourself, as I'll be taking you to the world of woke after the break, where we find out how Paris plans on eating the rich. And also, we'll take an extensive look at all the headlines in the papers for tomorrow. Stay right there. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. Now, it's known as the City of Love, and it is the must-see destination for anyone who wants to consider themselves cultured and well-read. Well, now it's going to be known for something else. And I don't just mean violent protests between the police and the farmers. In a shock decision, the French capital has voted to charge car drivers ludicrously inflated amounts of euros for the pleasure of parking on their streets. And now it's going to cost €225 Euros to park a large car or an SUV for six hours on a Paris street, even though a tiny minority of eco-zealots actually voted for it. A referendum was held on Sunday. Only 6% of the 1.3 potential voters actually bothered to turn out for the ballot. But 55% of them wanted the new extortionate parking charges to kick in, so now it's going to happen. As you might expect, London's Mayor Sadiq Khan has applauded the move, which is the brainchild of French socialist Mayor Anne Hidalgo. Uh, charges will start at €18 Euros for the first hour, rising rapidly over the next six hours. But would he allow it here? Probably not, because Mr Khan himself drives a 4x4 car or somebody else drives it for him. The idea, of course, is to punish the large 4x4s and other private vehicles that are deemed to be the worst offenders for polluting and crowding the city streets, many of which are old and narrow. But even electric cars don't escape the new green socialism. Hybrid and plug-in hybrid vehicles are included in the new charges, as are all electric cars that weigh over two tonnes. Taxis are exempt, as are health workers, tradespeople and drivers with a disability. But the main aim of the new policy is to punish people who drive big foreign cars. So there's even an element of xenophobia about it. Only one-third of Parisian households own a vehicle and there is said to be widespread hostility. The narrow margin of victory is due to the opposition in the more affluent parts of the western city. Conservative Council opposition leader Rashida Dati, who has just been appointed as President Macron's culture minister, called the referendum a publicity stunt. And motorist groups were very much against it as well, particularly since Paris is due to host the Olympics this summer. Not a, likely, not a very likely place to save emissions or stop pollution. You'd think the mayor of Paris might be more concerned about the looming food crisis in the city thanks to the demonstrations and protests of those French farmers who say their businesses are being ruined by unattainable targets on net zero and other environmental measures. Instead, Mayor Hidalgo is chasing the nonsensical dream of clean air by trying to turn everyone into cyclists, which the majority of residents don't want. Pierre Chasseret, head of the 40 million drivers lobbying group, said... If we don't stop it now, this rebellion led by an ultra-carb, urban and anti-car minority will spread like gangrene. Amen to that. Unfortunately, that is the world of woke. The world of woke. Heaven. But let's look at some of the other stories from tomorrow's papers anyway. Um, all very much centering, of course, on King Charles. Uh, the Sun front page, King's 30-minute reunion with Harry, we'll, we'll find out what other papers say uh, in a moment. But they've done absolutely loads on it, sort of six or seven or eight pages uh, inside as well. Um, but, Ryan, you've also got a little political exclusive from Harry Cole... That's right. ...on the inside. Our political editor, Harry Cole, is saying that Rishi Sunak is moving away from the idea of holding 
a general election in November. The working assumption was that mm. general election was going to be held on November the 14th, but right. moving towards holding it in October, mainly due to the sort of massive global insecurity around the US election yes. and bringing in Donald Trump. Do mm. you really want to have two sort of key allies, yeah. major players on, on the world stage, having elections so close to mm. each other? And there's G20 summit in Rio um, in November. Do you want a brand new prime minister flying off there? Mm. Um, there are also concerns about could this affect the, the party conferences, a big earner yeah. for parties. But the Conservatives have actually earned 16.5 million pounds over the, at the beginning of, over the, well, certainly over the last few months. So it doesn't seem to be having a major impact on that. But I think Rishi Sunak's major concern is this global insecurity. Yes. And that's why he seems like he's now minded to hold that um, general election mm. in October. Well, I must say, point. I was always surprised when, when November became the month that everyone was hinting because I was told once, and I don't know how true it is, that American elections and British elections very rarely happen in the same month. And if they are in the same year, there's a sort of unwritten agreement that they don't do it in November because that's when the US one is. So, and it's also, it's not going to be as cold in October that you might get a yeah. slightly bigger turnout. I don't know if that helps. Richard well, I think the Tories were thinking on November because traditionally uh, the, uh, the Tories are favoured uh, winter elections because they think Labour voters are less likely to own cars yeah. and le uh, are more li less likely to go out after dark. I think that's rather changing now. Isn't yeah. it? Voter base gets rather posher, but kind of, you know, folklore folklore kind of has that. But I There's think... plenty of cars in Putney. They're all four by fours. Exactly. <laughs> and now a Labour it was the only Labour gain. Yeah, I know, that's election. why I said yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to keep up. I mean, yeah. that's Sorry. the thing. You know, the point is, is that, you know, whenever you have the election, it doesn't really matter, does it, for Rishi Sunak? I mean, I think, though, I still think it might be a lot closer than everybody says. I think it will be. I think the sort of working assumption, if even Labour, for the worst case scenario, they may fall a little bit short of a majority, yeah. but really most people are thinking that it's, it's going to be relatively comfortable. Yes. But on the, on the general elections, you could possibly have had that US election on November the 5th the UK election on November the 14th, it just seems very, very close. Now, I know the US president doesn't really come in and take power until the January. Until January, yeah. But it does seem that it could Things cause like all sorts of... Yeah, it could cause all sorts of chaos. Dolly, if he waited until... and then called an election on, like, Christmas Eve or Christmas mm. Day or something. Yeah. Just broke with tradition or New Year's Day. Yes. I mean, he doesn't want to push it to January. That would look a bit desperate. But he could do... You know that week between Christmas yeah. and New Year? I still think there's a chance that they'll pull some rabbit out of the hat earlier and just suddenly go, let's do it in May. Yeah, you know, there's a... Something's happened, you know, we've got yeah. we've got the big mo with us or something, you know... Some Cutting tax, taxes in the market. Tax budget, rebate yeah. we can do or something a like lot that. Of, a lot of people are th thinking, look at these by-elections that are coming up. Mm. If things are really bad, you just cut your losses, yeah. go early. The longer you leave it, you could be racking yeah. up even bigger losses. Exactly right. So that but he will happen. be racking up more hours as Prime Minister, which is what he wants for his job afterwards, does our Rishi? I don't his think tech bro job in Surely California. it doesn't matter if you've been Prime Minister for three months longer if you were useless at it and, and you got kicked out. Yeah, that yeah, I think Miss Trust would have liked a few more weeks for us. Yeah, but there's something about, do you want to be sacked now or do you want to be sacked later? You know, he's going to try and eke it out for a little bit longer, isn't he? Yeah. It doesn't have to be a Thursday. Everybody thinks it's in law that it has to be a Thursday. It doesn't. There's nothing no. at all. It could but be any day, tradition, right? Tradition, yeah? yeah. There you go. Christmas Day, absolutely fine. Bring it okay. <laughs> We may revisit this. Let's have a look at some of the stuff inside on the sun. Um, will illness mend rift between dad and son? I think no is the answer to that. Maybe Prince Harry has finally realised that his father is not indestructible. Big piece by Robert Johnson uh, of this parish, who, who we see from time to time. Um, I think Harry is still the story, isn't he? I mean, that's what everybody wants to know about. King of pain. They've got strain that may have risked Charles's health. Um, and flying visit. They've also got Harry's 5,000 mile dash. This is what... 
everyone wants to know. Yeah, where is, is he? Is he staying? Is right. he going? Right. Is he going to stay the whole week? Is he around? Where's he staying tonight? Is yes. he in a hotel? Has he gone back to an empty, servantless Frogmore cottage? Yeah. Will he be a few hundred yards from an ailing Kate? You know, there's so much speculation yeah. going on at the moment. And it will continue to go on. It will, until, until he's presume... seen, I guess, getting back yeah. on the plane to LAX. And, and, I then... think, and I think, as Emily Andrews was saying when she was on earlier on, more than likely he won't hang around because William won't see him. His father's gone to Sandringham. He doesn't appear to have gone with him. So what else is he going to do? Isn't it also rather sad that you only spend 30 minutes yeah. with your father when he's gone through well, this? this, this according to the Daily Mail, it's 45, 45 minutes. Yes. I mean, it's, it could so be a right. secret 15-minute gap there somewhere. In, 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 well, in, the long corridors at Clarence House, you have to walk yeah. along the corridors. You probably have to show your pass, get your security clearance. Does he have to go through the scanner now? You know, is he, is he going to be, well, <laughs> is he gonna be I was going to say, maybe, his, maybe his, uh, his pass has been revoked, but you, you, you would not, not want to be that person walking down the long corridor to see your dad who you haven't spoken to for months and months and months and months, and who's not very keen on you at the moment. And when we don't I, know how serious the, 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 mm. the cancer is. I can only imagine it, it being really quite an awkward meeting. Terrible. Yeah, brave. So here, it's their first meeting in 16 months. That does seem like an awful long time, Since doesn't it? Since the death of um, the Queen, yeah. yeah. yeah I think that's what Emily months. was saying, yeah. because yeah. when he came for the coronation, he came, if you remember, and he didn't go to the party afterwards, and he literally got in a, in a, in a car and went straight to the airport. Because he had to go back for the, for the, for the second birthday party. Well, that's what he said, yeah. Allegedly, yeah. But, you know, I don't <laughs> think anybody wanted him around. It is quite sad. Since, and since the publication of Spare, which was yes. absolutely mm. coruscating mm. kind of attack on, on basically Charles and Camilla and the rest of the family. Yeah. And I think because people have family relationships and ups and downs, yeah. everybody's got a view. I mean, Sarah Vine's writing, what my own deeply scarring relationship with my father tells me about what Harry and Meghan urgently need to do in the Daily Mail. He'll get plenty of free advice from the, from the Fleet Street uh, <laughs> uh, peddlers yeah. of, of such Next things. Few weeks, um, absolutely right. What about uh, the Telegraph? We were talking about people pulling their own teeth out earlier on in the show. Dentists are going to get £20,000 golden hellos to move to rural areas where there is a shortage of NHS appointments. Well, there's a shortage of NHS appointments everywhere. And it, we've seen the you news know, this week. In the, Bristol, the, the footage yeah. in the middle of Bristol, yeah. in inner city Bristol. So this seems absolutely daft that it's now going to be um, only targeted at rural areas rather than areas which have particular shortages, yeah. and, you know, very specifically. And, you know, Victoria Atkins has written a piece, the health secretary has written a piece in the Telegraph saying that they're going to, quote, jumpstart NHS dentistry. Well, they've had oh, yeah. 14 years to jumpstart it. Well, I mean, every else. time I speak to dentists about the problem, the problem is, is that the amount of money that they make available per sort of patient is so low yeah. that they can't, operate. The, the, the only a, way they can operate is to do private care as well. And this is a really good attack line for Labour. They put out a poster um, today saying, big line um, of people queuing up for a dentist. Yeah. dentist, And basically saying, dentistry isn't working. Yeah. We've got millions of people... Harking back to the famous Labour is working yeah. Yeah. Um, headline. We've got millions of people waiting to get an appointment. Those sorts of things really hit home. And also, decaying teeth is the number one reason that children yes. are admitted to hospital. Yes. Have decaying, what it is teeth amazing. Well, this goes back to out. Keir Starmer's idea of teaching kids how to brush their teeth, yes. which still seems kind of mad to me. But you can see why where yeah, it's going. Yeah, but you prefer decaying teeth. I mean, if parents are not doing their job, mm. parental responsibility has fallen apart, do you prefer the children to have their teeth brushed or not? Well, keep going on about my view of that is even more bizarre than you would imagine because if people can't teach their own children to clean their teeth, I don't think you should well, have then children. Well, then you I know what you're going to say. Them. They shouldn't have children. They shouldn't but have, they have them. What are you going to do? Enforce contraception on people? Yeah. People are. Yeah. <laughs> in the independent public. It has been done. It has been done. Willy nilly. They are not bothering. Yeah. 
these children exist. Do you mm. care about the children or do you not? I do care about the children, but I also care about society. And I don't think we should be paying for people who can't afford to do things just because we think that's a bad idea. And in cases of, of, of contraception, which you can give people, they have done it. They did it in Scotland. There was a 12-year-old girl who got pregnant um, and uh, the boy that impregnated her was 14 or something like that. She then got pregnant again, and in the end they got a court order, and she had a contraceptive um, device put yeah. in her arm. So she couldn't have any more kids yeah. until she was old enough to decide at something like 17 or 18 that she actually wanted them, because that's sometimes what you have to do. Sounds mad, I know, and sounds draconian, but if, if we just keep giving people help and money, because they can't do something. I know, but I don't I mean, know how to cook. Oh, okay, we'll give you some money, some food vouchers, so you can buy a load of bananas. No, we can't keep funding things that don't work, I think. People have got used to it. Told so, you you'd yeah, be surprised. Yeah. So lots of handouts over COVID. People think that, you know, there's, there's, there's free people money available. People just go, yeah, well, I can't afford to, to, to buy a toothbrush, so I'll just get one free from the school. But, no. Yeah. But on, the, on the golden hellos and the £20,000, mm. if they are going to the dentist, what about the junior doctors? They'll be kicking off next, thinking, Where, where's yeah. our hand? And if, and if Labour think that, you know, all the strikes are going to be over, I'm afraid it's going to get a lot worse, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, in West Street, Labour's health spokesperson said that, he, you know, that he, that there's no checkbook that he's got out. It's a, it's a journey, not an event, uh, junior doctors pay. So, yeah. it, you know, they're not going to get what they want. It's just a cash case yeah. whether they decide to give them the benefit of the Unfortunately, doubt, the journey's on the railways and they're on strike as well. But there we are. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thanks to everybody who was here and watching. I'll see you tomorrow at nine. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.